according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me, if you would, in John chapter 15. John 15. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. Remember, this is the upper room and walk to the garden discourse. It takes us from chapter 13 all the way through to chapter 17, including the high priestly prayer of John 17. We are in the midst of point seven. On the walk to the garden, Jesus continued the important ecclesiastical preview. Subpoint A, Adam was given a garden to tend, but the true vine and the true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father. And uh, under this, we have seven subpoints. And then uh, we're ready for point B after that. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. We move from verse 8 into verse 9, and we realize that we go from abiding in Christ to abiding in His love. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So this is where we're going to pick it up, where we left it last week. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and humble under the authority of the Word of God, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for the privilege we have to assemble together and to humble ourselves and receive your truth. Father, open the eyes of our understanding and lead us into the truth of your word on this day. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, before I forget, remember next week is our VBS week. So you have the week off. There's no Life of Christ class, no ladies prayer. uh, One week from today. All right. I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. And we understand that this is a new feature of the church age. This is a new feature. Uh, Old Testament saints did not abide in Christ. Old Testament saints were not baptized into mystical union with the body of Christ. Old Testament saints, uh, this is not a message that has any application for Moses or David or Daniel or anybody in the Old Testament. All right? Now, they could be saved. They could grow in the Word of God. They could bear fruit as believers making application of the Word of God as they were convicted and as they understood it. But they could not bear fruit in this sense, in the sense of being a branch abiding in the vine and bearing fruit that is of what the Father is producing as the vine dresser with the vine. All right? Are we clear on that? Because the idea of not bearing any fruit means if if we say that this is the only definition of bearing fruit, some people take this too far, where they say, uh, again, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, Neither can you unless you abide in me. And they take that to mean that no believer ever in the history of mankind would ever bear any kind of fruit without abiding in Christ. That's not fair to this text. All right. It's bearing fruit of this type in this scope with the father as the vine dresser and Christ as the vine and us as the branches. 
Now, nobody would doubt that Old Testament believers bore fruit. We have Ephesians, we have Hebrews 11 with a hall of fame of faith. They bore fruit. They were men of whom the world was not worthy. And by faith, they shut the mouths of lions and they moved mountains and they brought back people from the dead. By faith, they did a tremendous amount. They bore fruit. They did so by faith. We bear fruit. We do so by faith. But more than that, we do so by abiding in the vine and allowing the vine dresser to work through us, to prune us, to lift us up, to shape us, to, uh, to accomplish his good pleasure in and through us. So we want to be clear on that. This is an ecclesiastical preview. This is talking about ways that we bear fruit in the church far and beyond anything an Old Testament believer ever did. And the biggest loser in the church age is still in a higher position with greater blessings than the greatest hero of the Old Testament. All right, The least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than the greatest of those born among women. And that's, that's just a sense of proportion that we have to identify with and recognize. And, and count God, you know, count your blessings that you're a church age saint. All right? You don't deserve to be, but you are. And you don't deserve to be saved either, but you are. And so let's uh, rejoice in what he's provided for us and then try to live a life that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called. Because we'll never deserve it. But we want to live a life in appreciation and a grace response for the grace that has put us in this position. All right. So Adam was given a garden to tend, but the true vine and true worker are Jesus Christ and God the Father for the first time ever, ever, that everything related to uh, Adam's work as a, as a uh, garden keeper, now the reality of this in the spiritual realm is going to be exhibited by a, a priesthood, by a stewardship on this earth. Now under this, uh, seven points of study. Let me just get through these. Branches either bear fruit or not. The word study between Iro and Kothiro. The eleven are already clean and already pruned. We've got to identify that. It's a positional truth reality. They are already clean. They are already pruned. It happened in the moment of their salvation. All right? And uh, just as in John 13, he said, other than Judas Iscariot, y'all are clean. Here in uh, John 15, where Judas is has departed he can tell them you're already pruned you're already clean it's the same word it's the same kathiro there and uh, or katharos the adjective form and we see it here um abide we did some conversation related to minnow and the fact of this reciprocal abiding is different than the than the uh, singular abiding where we abide in christ we abide in his word we abide in his love uh, if his word abides in us but this reciprocal formula of abide in me and I in you, that reciprocal back and forth, that mutual abide in me and I in you, is a statement that declares the reality of our salvation, our positional truth. And so, if you're saved, you qualify. If you're saved, this verse is you. And it's not something that you can lose. You can't lose your salvation. You can't stop the abiding in me and I in you. Because there's nothing that can separate us from that love of God which is in Christ Jesus. There's nothing that can remove us from the hand of God the Father and from the hand of Jesus Christ. This abide in me and I in you is eternal. Now the other abides that we see are conditional and temporal and we can stop abiding in the Word of God. And we can stop letting the Word of God abide in us. And we can turn, uh, we can turn uh, reversionistic tomorrow or this afternoon. And we can just... Start hating God and give up on His Word and walk away from church and walk away from the Christian way of life. We don't lose our salvation. We still abide in Him and He in us and, and we're still branches in the vine. 
All right. So we see the uh, we want to make sure we have the proper context and the proper contrast between the positional truth and the experiential sanctification. All right. So we dealt with a lot of that in point four and then point five. Bearing much fruit is what glorifies the father. The principle is much. It's in verse five. It's in verse eight. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think this clue, this much clue, I didn't stress it last week. And even just now, I should have probably said something more about it. But this is our clue that we're dealing with something far and away beyond anything the Old Testament saints could have done. David bore fruit. Sure, he did. Daniel bore fruit, of course. Old Testament believers could bear fruit, but they don't bear much fruit. They're not in the abundant life that is the church age. I have come that they might have life, that they might have it abundantly. John chapter 10 tells us you and I live in the abundant Christian way of life. That's the Melchizedek priesthood of the church age. And so we bear much fruit. And again, verse eight, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples, much fruit. The father is glorified as we bear much fruit. In other words, as we operate as church age, believer priests, as we walk in the church age. All right, bearing much fruit is what glorifies the Father. And how much is much? We asked, I asked you that question last week. How much is much? Well, it's more than you've already done. <laughs> All right, whatever you've done, don't be complacent about it. And don't pat yourself on the back. And don't puff yourself up and say, I've done a lot. God must really need me. Or God must really be thankful for how great I am. Not at all. Whatever you've done in the past, the past is the past and forget what lies behind. And don't ever assume that whatever you've done is enough. All right. It doesn't say my father is glorified in this, that you bear enough fruit. My father is glorified in this, that you bear much fruit. And we need to get enough out of our vocabulary. We need to start getting much into the forefront of our thinking. And we need to recognize that, you know what? I'm still here on earth and I haven't done much. I haven't done much. I need to keep doing more so that I can say I've done much in bearing much fruit. And this is the, uh, the impact of forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward. We're not regarding ourselves as having laid hold of it yet. You know, Paul said, I, don't lay hold of, I haven't laid hold of it yet. That's a believer. The, the believer that says that is the believer who is content, who says, I've done enough. I've done enough. I've, I've laid hold of it already. I've done enough. And then so at what point, why are you still here? Really? Are you just going to retire? You're, 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 you're content? You're going to bank on what you've done? No. Forgetting what lies behind. Lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. We're not done until he says we're done. So bearing much fruit is what glorifies the Father. Do-nothings are fire-bound. Do-nothings are fire-bound. Did we look at these scriptures last week? We did, okay. The do-nothings are firebound. And the do-nothings, by the way, are the ones that aren't even saved. This is the will of my Father that you believe in Him whom He has sent. What must we do that we may work the works of God? They said, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. You familiar with that? All right, that's the work of God. And, and this is where, again, we... We, uh, we have to be careful because there are human approaches to who are the do-nothings. And we get on a relative scale where we think that the loser believer is a do-nothing. 
because he hasn't done much since he got saved. And there's a difference between not doing much and doing nothing. And who are the do-nothings? The do-nothings aren't even saved. Because at least the person who has eternal life has done that. He's not a do-nothing. He has done that. He has believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and received eternal life. He is not a do-nothing. He will be at the judgment seat of Christ to receive His... He'll see the bonfire. He'll see all the works burned up because everything He's got is wood, hay, stubble. But He's still at the judgment seat of Christ. He's not at the great white throne. He is not a do-nothing. All right? And people have this idea, and I talk about it. I, talk, I used it just a minute ago, the, the loser Christian. Right? The biggest loser. Or maybe, you know, maybe it was somebody who lived his whole life as an unbeliever and then on his deathbed he accepted the gospel and he gets saved and six hours later he, he's, he's dead. All right? What, what kind of fruit did he bear in the, in the six hours or six minutes of his, of his physical life from salvation to physical death? Nothing. Nothing at all. But he's not a do-nothing because he believed. He did the work of God the Father. This is the will of God the Father that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so it's only the do-nothings that are firebound. And when you read that parable in Matthew 13, uh, you, you recognize that the tares, it's not to the end of the age that the tares are gathered up and uh, thrown into the bundle together and cast into the fire to be burned, but the wheat is gathered into the barn. It's only believers that are allowed to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Unbelievers are snatched out in what I call the anti-rapture, Right? At the rapture of the church, it's believers that are snatched out and unbelievers are left behind uh, to endure hell on earth in the tribulation. But at second advent, it's the unbelievers that are snatched out, bundled together and cast into the fire to be burned. Whereas it's the believers that are left behind to enter into heaven on earth, to enter into thy kingdom come, thy will be done, to enter into the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Only believers enter into the millennium. So you've got a rapture that ends the church age and you've got an anti-rapture that ends the tribulation. All right? And if you're clear on that, then you, can, you don't get mixed up in Matthew 24 and Matthew 25. You don't look at that one will be taken, one will be left passage and wonder if it's a rapture passage. You look at it and say, well, gee, is this a rapture passage or an anti-rapture passage? And it becomes obvious it's an anti-rapture passage because it agrees with the uh, wheat and the tares parable of Matthew, 20, uh, Matthew 13. So the do-nothings are fire-bound. You don't have to worry about, well, gee, if I don't bear enough fruit, is God going to take me away? People get scared in verse 6. If anyone does not abide in me. It doesn't say if anyone doesn't bear much fruit. It says if anyone doesn't abide in me. This is positional truth. He is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, cast them into the fire, and they are burned. So if somebody tries to use that verse to scare you into thinking you're going to lose your salvation, don't let them. Don't let them. And then finally, abiding in Christ is mutually reciprocal, as is abiding in His words. So let's look at this. I believe we did not, and even if we did, I want to look at this again. Let's look at these verses. And I want you to see how it goes both directions. Both directions. And this is, this is unusual. This is probably um, impossible in the physical universe. For you to be inside of something that is also inside of you. Okay? In a totality and complete and total way. Alright? I mean, are you inside this building or is this building inside you? You're inside this building. Okay? Now, somebody's going to think of something that's mutually reciprocal and 
talk to me after class, all right? And maybe, you know, partially, partially, yeah, you know. I could stick my finger in your ear and you could stick your finger in my ear, but we're talking totally, 100%. 100%. I am inside this building, but this building is not inside me. All right, now, in John 15, 4, it says, Abide in me and I in you. It's both directions. It's bidirectional. It's mutually reciprocal. I am abiding in Christ and Christ is abiding in me. And uh, this is why we, we treat it uniquely as a, as a nature of the imperative. Because I can, I can give a second person imperative. I can tell you to do something. But then how do I tell me to do something? How do I give a first person imperative? Abide in me and I order myself to abide in you? No. This is the reciprocal activity of union with Christ. Abide in me and I in you. We have this again back in John 6.56. John 6.56, which we saw uh, previously with the imperative, when we looked at the imperative of Menno. But the way to do this is to believe. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. It's reciprocal. So this is how you abide in Christ. And of course, eating my flesh and drinking my blood is the representative of believing. Believing. The uh, bread and cup here are bread and, and blood being metaphors. Eating and drinking being metaphors. But eating and drinking equals coming to and equals believing all throughout this. Okay? And if you need more on that, it's, it's just throughout all of chapter 6. Here. The whole chapter, I think, Makes this, uh, makes this clear. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I will raise him up on the last day. So how do you lose that? You can't. It's eternal. He has presently now eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. There's nobody in between that can lose that in the meantime. I will raise him up on the last day. Your eternal security is based upon Jesus Christ's faithfulness to obey the Father and raise these people up on the last day. All right. Verse 47 there. He who believes has eternal life. I don't know how many times you can say that. Now, abiding in his word, likewise, is reciprocal. In verses 7 and 8, now we have abiding in the word and the word abiding in us. So notice verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So now this is a step beyond. This is not just abiding in me and I in you. This is now if you abide in me and my words abide in you. And here's where a lot of believers are falling short. A lot of believers are not letting the Word of Christ richly dwell within them. Right? It wants to. It's supposed to. But you have to let it. Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. If you hinder it, if you stop it, if you don't let it richly dwell, if you don't clear away the stones and clear away the, the uh, thorns, if you don't prepare the good depth of soil, it's not going to richly dwell within you. If you don't humble yourself, it's not going to richly dwell within you. With humility, we're told, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. All right? You have to let it richly dwell within you. The, the word of God abiding in you, most believers are not disciples. See, this was a, 
impact that we saw in uh, chapter 8, John chapter 8, about being a true disciple. John 8 and verse 31. And this is where we see it going the other direction. They're both true at the same time. The Word lives in us, but we have to live in the Word. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed Him, notice they're all believers. (laughs) Okay? If you abide in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. This isn't a salvation verse. They're already saved. He says, but you've got to abide in the Word of God or you will never have the experiential freedom from the sin struggles. You will be just like an unbeliever. You're not abiding in the Word. You're not being led by the Spirit. You're not, uh, if you're not led by the Spirit, you're going to be subject to the, the lust of the flesh all over again, just like the unbeliever. It's the, it's the leading of the Holy Spirit. It's abiding in the Word that gives you that empowerment, that victory, that freedom from the sin nature. And you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. So you see, it goes both directions. You're living in the Word, but the Word is also living in you. The Word is also living in you. And think about that. That's a positive thing you have living in you. It's not like it's a, you know, the doctor diagnoses a a parasite living in you and says, you've got this organism living inside of you, okay? And maybe it's a bacteria, or maybe it's a, a pregnancy. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been trying to avoid that. I find that I offend women a lot, and that's one of them. That how, how dare you accuse pregnancy as being, a, well, it's a living thing inside of you. That's what it is. It's a living thing inside of you, and it kicks you a lot. Okay? At least my wife tells me so. And that's what we want the Word of God to be. We want it to be alive inside of us, and we want it to kick us a lot. We want the Word of God to kick us from inside. When, uh, when we're tempted to sin, we want, we want that kick. We want that conviction. We want that re- rebuke, that reminder. See, because yeah, if it's a if it's a parasite and a leech and something deadly, then you got to kill it, right? You got to <laughs> you don't want that bacteria going on in there or the whatever it is. I, I can't remember her name, but this missionary lady from Africa, she had these worms crawling through her veins, and she 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 said she's going to have them for the rest of her life. They can they cannot cure it. They cannot c- take them out of there. She got the and you could watch and you could see little ripples under her skin. Give you the creeps, right? Just watching it. Well, we want the Word of God living, dwelling richly, living richly within us. Not just surviving, but living richly. Feasting, see, my mother's tumor, right? Just feasting on all the blood vessels and veins and everything else. We want the Word of God to be nourished and nurtured and feasting and growing, see, and so that's how this works. We've got to live in the Word, and the Word's got to live in us. And this is where we have it as truly you are my disciples. How many believers are not disciples? I think the majority. Worldwide, I'm talking about. All right? Worldwide, I think it's a small, uh, the, the, the number is higher for the non-disciples than it is for the disciples. And that's just my view you say I'm a pessimist. I agree. But I also think it's biblical when you look at stony ground, thorny ground, good soil. There's only one out of those three groups that has good soil. And even there, they're bearing fruit. How much? 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. So even there, a third of them aren't bearing as much as the rest of them. See. 
So uh, if it's if it's a small if it's a remnant that's saved and then it's a remnant that's a disciple and then it's a remnant that's bearing maximum fruit for the glory of Jesus Christ. Is that not the pattern that we have in the I believe it is. And since that's the pattern we have biblically and it lines up with what I'm seeing in uh, in uh, the world today. Not that we gauge our theology based on what we observe, but they are compatible. All right. Now, moving on to point B then. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. It's not an accident that verses 1 through 8 comes before verses 9 through 17. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. It's not a, not a mistake that we learn about our abiding in Christ, our abiding in the Word, and our bearing fruit. If we learn those lessons and we apply that doctrine, it becomes real in our lives, then we're ready for verses 9 through 17. Then we're ready to start living the sacrificial life of love. The sacrificial life of love. In verses 9 through 17. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. Learn how to work. Learn how to bear fruit. Learn how to abide in the Word of God. Learn how to be a productive single person before you learn how to become a productive married person. Alright? Husbands are commanded to love their wives. Husbands are commanded to love. Uh, and, and so, you start to evaluate when is a young man ready for marriage? Well, has he learned to love the Lord? Has he learned to be a productive, fruit-bearing Christian in the Christian way of life? In other words, has he learned John 15, verses 1 through 8? Then he's ready to live agape love, which is illustrated in verses 9 through, 16, 9 through 17. And he's ready to take agape and put it into a phileo application. All right. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. And it's not the other way around. I find that interesting. Um, I've heard it taught and maybe I've had conversations and people have thought, well, if I, if, I learn, if I learn love first, then I will learn, uh, I'll be able to bear fruit. Well, that's not the order of this passage. All right. And, and there is motivation here and one motivates the other. All right. Verse 9, just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. And here's our first application of love. I don't see love anywhere in 1 through 8. I see abiding in Christ. I see abiding in, uh, in Him. I see His Word abiding in me. I see a prayer life. I see fruit bearing. I see glorifying the Father, proving to be disciples. I see all of that, but I haven't yet seen love. Okay? I think there's a reason for that. There's faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. There's an order to approaching love. And so if we have faith and hope in the early verses, we, now we reach love. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. And that your joy may be made full. 
And this is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And, uh, I mean, this is starting to take us into, into some deep things related to agape love application. But it also crosses over from agape to phileo. The word for friends there is philos. You are my philoi. You are my friends. If you do what I command you and you agape one another. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all that I have, for all things that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Now there are other passages that, that highlight the slavery that we have. We are bond slaves of Jesus Christ, yes. But we are more than that. Old Testament saints were also bond slaves. But they were not more than that. They were not friends. They were not philoi, as we are philoi. We are adult sons, royal sons, with the father privilege that Jesus Christ had. And so no longer do I call you, if you want to put in only slaves, or no longer do I call you simply slaves. Because, as I said, we are bond slaves of Jesus Christ, and that's, that is a truth pertaining to the church age as well. But we are more than slaves. All right. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. All right. So productive work capacity. In other words, John 15, 1 through 8. Productive work capacity enables sacrificial love capacity. Verses 9 through 17. And I'll just... Say it right here, right now. The non-disciple believers who are not abiding in the Word of God, they don't know the first thing about loving one another in the body of Christ. Not one thing. Zero. Okay? And um, they'll deny it. They'll call you a liar. Reason being, though, is because our light and fluffy, touchy-feely generation has redefined agape love. And they've redefined what the agape for one another is supposed to be. And um, they've, they've substituted it in, into, a, into, a, um, into an emotional codependent attachment where they don't have a local church, they have a support group. And they don't speak the truth in love with the unconditional, uncompromising, doctrinal defense of Jesus Christ. They... Accuse and excuse and fluff each other up and say, you're okay. You're all right. God knows. God understands. And, and He loves you just the way you are. And they tolerate every perversion under the sun so that they comfort one another and say, you're okay. We accept you. We accept you. Okay? That is a perversion of what love one another is supposed to be. And that is a sad, sad uh, perversion of what agape and phileo are. And this is a passage that takes us from agape to phileo. The agapao commandment is to agapao one another, but the phileo, friends, is what we have here. And the rapport that Jesus Christ and the Father had, the philos, the, the phileo love that the Father and Jesus Christ had, they had because each one of them had agape love to start with. So we're going to talk about this. And Spell it out for you, all right? And <laughs> if um, you know folks or have friends or if uh, you have any true agape 
for brothers and sisters that are in that light and fluffy, touchy-feely, quasi-pseudo-phileo approach, perhaps your love for them will be motivated to say something and say, you know, this whole codependency thing is idolatry. It's all idolatry. And the acceptance, the language of tolerance and acceptance is the language of calling good evil and evil good. Wickedness is to be not even named among you as is proper among the saints. Idolatry is idolatry. And if, even if it has a, a Christian label to it and say, well, these big megachurches are doing it. All right. We're not here to, to approve of the things that God says are abominations. All right. Just as, just as, to the same degree, in the same manner, with the same motivations, the Father has loved me. So, what was that degree? What was that motivation? In what manner did the Father love the Son? In what manner did the Father love the Son? In that manner, Jesus Christ has also loved us. So when was that? How long ago was that? Was that because we were lovable? No. We weren't lovable. We were sinners. We were sinners. Remember, God the Father, agape Jesus Christ. Not because He was worthy. He was worthy. Of course He's worthy. But the Father didn't agape Jesus because Jesus was worthy. He gave agape love to Jesus because the Father had the character and integrity to extend agape love. All right, we're supposed to love God with agape love, not because He deserves it. He does, of course. But I love Him for my integrity, not His. I love Him in my perspective, not His. Can you do that? Can you, can you agape the one that's infinitely worthy without having His worthiness in view? Can you agape Him for your soul's integrity? We've got to deal with. All right. Jesus' love for His church is just as the Father has loved Him. I would tell you that it's from the foundation of the world with the love giftedness of all things for all time. Jesus' love for His church. He didn't love Israel this way. Yahweh does love Israel, but not like this. Not like this. Jesus' love for His church is just as. We're going to see a couple of just as's in this passage. Just as. The Father has loved Him. So ask yourself, how did the Father love Christ? Because that just as applies to how He loves us. How He loves His bride. How He loves the church. Well, John 17:24 says it was from the foundation of the world. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. It's an eternal love. It's based on God the Father's grace eternal plan of the ages. 
It's not based upon what we've earned, what we've deserved, who we are, what we're like. It's not based upon personality. It is not based upon uh, mutually compatible interests. All right. From the foundation of the world and with the love giftedness of all things for all time. With the love giftedness of all things for all time. Agape motivates giving. First love, first deeds. God so loved the world that He gave. Christ so loved the church that He gave. Right? John 3.16, Ephesians 5. Love and give. Love and give. And in John 3.35, we see this love giftedness. And it's an eternal love giftedness. The Father loves the Son and... Remember, the love that Christ has for the church is just like the love that God has for the Son. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. And so what has the Son given us? All things. That's right. We are fellow heirs with Christ Jesus. And Christ so loved the church and gave Himself for us. He washes us by the sanctification of the water with the Word. We understand Ephesians chapter 5, the, the imagery of Christ and the church. So let's understand this. Are we loving with an eternal love? Are we giving with eternal fruit? Are we giving with eternal fruit? What is it I give my children? Do I give them a college education? Do I give them a car? Do I give them clothes? Do I give them earthly food? What is it I give my children? eternal fruit that's right lead them to a saving knowledge of jesus christ train them up as disciples of jesus christ teach them how to abide in the word and how the word abides in them teach them how to love the lord their god teach them how to love one another in the body of christ do that for my wife do that for my children do that for my flock do that for my brothers and sisters in the local church and I'm walking in love. And I'm loving them from the foundation of the world. Now, I don't go back that far myself personally, but I do get on board God the Father's plan and program. I do understand what the plan of God for the ages is. And I plug into my part of that program. And I start extending the love giftedness for all eternity. I start giving for eternal fruit, bearing one another's burdens, fulfilling the law of Christ, edifying brothers and sisters with gold, silver, and precious stones, putting the best building material into their life because it's going to bear fruit for all eternity. So, and I, you could break that out if you want to break that out as an A and a B. I probably should have. Otherwise, it's just one great big run-on sentence, right? <laughs> so end it with, uh, just as the Father has loved Him, period. And then A, from the foundation of the world, John seventeen twenty four, And B, with the love giftedness of all things for all times. I'll fix the slide by next week. All right. Make that an A and a B.
I did that at first, then I took it out, and then I put it back, then I took it out. And I should have put it back because I did the same thing with point three and point four. They've got A's and B's, so I should have done the same thing with point one. All right. But this is the love. Okay? So now, uh, what does this mean? When if I'm thinking in terms of God the Father and God the Son. Uh, when God the Son was having a real bad day, did God the Father come up to him and say, It's okay, it's okay, it'll be all right. I love you. It's not your fault. See, this is the kind of activity that our culture is redefining agape love as. Well, if, if the Father wasn't doing that to the Son, then this is not the, the just as application I need to be making. I am to love one another just as Christ loved me and just as the Father loved Him. All right? So it's not a... It's not a uh, it's not a, a sympathy thing. Okay? Now, there's a place for that. There's a, there's a comfort one another with the comfort with which we've received. There is a place for sympathy and comfort in the Christian walk, but that's a different animal than the agape love. And it just breaks my heart the way they've redefined love to where it's just a watered-down sympathy. And it should be more than that. It should be eternal. Focused on the Father's eternal purpose. And it should be love-giving, love-gifted. It should be providing fruit for all eternity. And it may be a rebuke. It may be, you know, church discipline is a love application. It may be, uh, it may be a harsh word, but one that's needed. Okay? Still a love application. It's not light and fluffy, touchy-feely. All right. So there's the just as. Now, we then have a consequent imperative. The consequent imperative is for the church to abide, not in our love for one another, but to abide in Christ's love for us. The consequent imperative is for the church to abide in Christ's love. What does that mean? Living daily in the conscious awareness of our Savior's unconditional love. Again, this probably could use an A and a B as well. Huh? Get rid of these run-on sentences. The consequent imperative is for the church to abide in Christ's love. The second 9B here, the second part of verse 9. Abide in my love. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. The consequent imperative... The consequent imperative is consequent of the Father's love for Christ and Christ's love for the church. Abide in my love, the love of Christ. We'll get to the love one another in a moment about keeping my commandments. Let's start just in verse 9b here. Abide in my love. What is my love? What is the love of Christ in this context, in this application? The consequent imperative is for the church to abide in Christ's love. Israel couldn't do this. He didn't love Israel this way. Gentiles couldn't do this. He didn't love Gentiles this way. Angels couldn't do this. This is unique to the church. 
So what does it mean to abide in Christ's love? Living daily in the conscious awareness of our Savior's unconditional love and imitating Christ's walk of obedience before the Father. John 15.10 tells you how to do it. Keep my commandments. You will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Here's how you do it. You copy what He did. What did He do? He kept His Father's commandments and He abided in His Father's love. All right. You can be okay? Okay. You're scaring me. <laughs> All right. Notice now. Here's our other just as. You see the other just as in verse 10? you got a just as in verse 9. And you've got a just as in verse 10. So if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Notice this is conditional. This is an if. This isn't, exper- this isn't absolute. This isn't positional. This isn't saying that, well, you're saved. You've, you've received eternal life. You just automatically do this. You don't. This is your choice to make. This is the priority system you put in place. This is how you conduct your life. Do you keep his commandments or not? Do you walk in a manner that he uh, has directed for you or not? How did Jesus Christ walk? He said, I've come not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Not my will, but thine be done. Are you doing that? Are you telling Jesus Christ, not my will, but thine be done? Are you telling Jesus Christ, uh, open this door, this is my will, that's what I want to do. Close that door, that's what I don't want to do. (laughs) Say, no, Lord, I don't want to do that. Shut that door, please. Open this door over here, I'd rather do this. We're not entitled to do that. All right. So we have a walk that's just as, but it has to be in this love. Just as the Father has loved me, I've also loved you. Abide in my love. So I'm living in that love. And where you live and how you live is entirely your choice. It's not an accident. It doesn't say hang out in my love, right? Or visit my love every so often. Live in my love. Understand that's where you live. That's where you dwell. That's where you remain. That's where you belong. That's where you spend the majority of your time. That's where you live. The Word of God is not just something you check out every so often. Okay? You know, ask yourself, where do you live? Do you live on the golf course? Well, how often are you there? Do you live in the bowling alley? Live at the ballpark? That's where I would have been back in the day. You know, you're there so often, it's like you live there. Or is it a place you see every so often? Say, I, I think it's probably been, I don't remember the last year I went to Arlington and saw a ball game. Measure that in years. I don't even get to Round Rock to see ball games. All right. Where do you live? Where do you spend your time? Okay. Some men. Uh, turn their workplace into where they live. They live at work more than they live at home. Because that's where they choose to spend not only the majority of their time, but the majority of their thoughts. Even when they're at the house, their mind is still back at work. So where are they living? Yeah. Well, this is getting real embarrassing. All right. Where are you living? Where's your mind? Where's your mind? Yeah, you might be at home, but your mind is... You're not living there because your mind is somewhere else. You're not in the Word of God because that's not where your mind is. 
you give it some thought every so often. You show up to church, pastor starts saying things, and then, <sighs> is he done yet? I've got no interest in this. My mind wants to go back to where my mind's been the other six days of the week. Okay? You know, what is it, 176 hours in a week? And it's just too much to have one of those hours focused on things of the Lord. So where do you live? Do you live in the Word? Does the Word live in you? Are you living in Christ's love? Again, conscious awareness of our Savior's unconditional love. Conscious awareness of our Savior's unconditional love. That's the love of Christ. The love that He had for us. Every single day, Jesus Christ loved me and gave Himself for me. I didn't deserve it. I don't deserve anything. I should be in the lake of fire. And there's a problem. People stop reminding themselves of that. They start thinking, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm doing all right. I'm worth something. Yeah, I'm okay. (laughs) And if I bother thinking about how He hung on the cross and accepted God's wrath for my sake, I don't think about it very often. Or when I do, you know, it wasn't that bad. I wasn't that big a sinner. I'm better than these other guys. So I mean, sure, yeah, He went to the cross, but come on. I was mostly savable anyway. (laughs) You realize... How blasphemous that is. And we usually aren't so bold as to voice it. But in the, in the thinking, a lot of people think that they were, they're pretty good. And God just couldn't help Himself. He saw, oh my goodness, I've got to save this person. You know, predestination and election based on how awesome they are. Yeah, oh, I want Him to be in my family. I want to live daily in the conscious awareness of our Savior's unconditional love. That He loved me for His sake, not mine. That He loved me in His capacity, not my worthiness. And every day is my reminder that I'm, I should be in hell. As well as imitating Christ's walk of obedience before the Father. I'm going to go where He wants me to go. I'm going to say what He wants me to say. I'm going to do what He wants me to do. And I'm going to take up my cross and follow Him. Why? Because that's what He did. That's what He did. That's the pattern we have. Just as... I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. How did He live in His Father's love? By waking up every single day and saying, Father, not my will, but Thine be done. Every single day. And it meant that He was abused. It meant He was beaten. It meant He was vilified. It meant that He was condemned. It meant that He was crucified. didn't matter. It was the Father's good pleasure. I'm going to do it. So that's how we do it. And only then, believers that are willing to do that are going to love one another the way that verse 12 tells them to do. Love one another just as I have loved you. Eternally, sacrificially, givingly. Givingly. With the love giftedness of all things for all times. Givingly. And what are you going to hold back? Say, well, I know they're my sister in Christ. I know I'm supposed to love them, but... I'm going to hold this back. Uh, that's, that's, that's fine up to a point. Boy, but I, I draw the line here. Yep. They're just not worth it. <laughs> what have they done for me lately? That's not how Jesus loved you. Jesus didn't, uh, wasn't on the cross thinking, what did Bob Bollinger do for him lately? He went to the cross because he loved his father. He was obedient to his father. 
imitating Christ's walk of obedience before the Father. And so that's how we're supposed to love. I'm supposed to pour gold, silver, and precious stones into my fellow brothers and sisters. Why? Not because they're worth it. Because Christ is worth it. Because I want to be obedient to Him. I'm going to do what He wants me to do. And I don't draw a line. It says, be faithful unto death. I will give you the crown of life. There's no line. All right. You know, it's pretty unique. The dispensation of the church. We're going to start on this. The Point three. The dispensation of the church is the first stewardship. I almost said first and only, but I believe tribulational believers are going to learn this. And millennial believers are going to learn this. Fullness of time believers are going to learn this. But Israel never did, not in the Old Testament, and Gentiles never did, angels never did. The dispensation of the church is the first stewardship to receive the fullness of the joy of Christ. The dispensation of the church is the first stewardship to receive the fullness of the joy of Christ. We have His joy. We have His joy. We have His peace. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. We have His peace. We have His love. We have His joy. We have everything He has. We have. Because we're His bride. We're Him. See, all that I am and all that I have, I give to you. Because we're the bride of Christ. Okay? If you hear Saturday, you heard that vow as the rings were exchanged. With all that I am and all that I have. Notice, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you, first of all, and that your joy may be made full, second of all. The first is positional. The second is experiential. We need to come to understand how is it that the, the fruit of the Spirit is joy. It's love, joy, peace. Right? So we have a joy, first of all, but then we, we need to make that joy complete. We need to make that joy, um, the fullness of that joy. Make my joy complete by being of one mind, of one spirit. We're going to talk about those verses in Philippians here in a moment. Actually, it's got to wait till next week. Now, I'm not saying that Israel never had joy. Of course they had joy, right? David had joy, started dancing naked. And and uh, I don't think he was naked naked, but he was naked enough, you know, stripped down to his uh, army issue loincloth. Okay. And uh, Miriam had joy, started bangling the, tam- the, the, the tambourines and dancing and that, right? There's a lot of joy in the Old Testament. They had a day of jubilee. They had a bunch of joy. But they didn't have the joy of Christ. They had joy themselves for their own sake in what they had received. Christ has joy in what He has fulfilled, what He has achieved for God the Father in, in, in us. It is a powerful thing. Something that He anticipated before the foundation of the world. Something that He... Um, with the joy that he has in heaven, we get to we get to reflect that. We get to share that same joy. We have the heavenly perspective. Israel didn't have that. The Gentiles didn't have that. From Adam to Abraham, they didn't have that. But we have the heavenly perspective. We have the joy of Christ. So there's an A and a B here as well. We'll deal with this next week as it relates to 
joy in its fullness. We'll be looking at Romans, we'll be looking at Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Peter, 1 John. You know, why was Israel in, the, in Mosaic Law never told to rejoice always? <laughs> you ever think about that? 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Why was that not in Deuteronomy somewhere? Or Leviticus? Or anywhere in the Old Testament? Israel wasn't equipped to rejoice always. We are. We are. We'll talk about that. Alright. Any questions? Anything before I close? That's right. We're not meeting next week. So it's two weeks from today that we will come back and talk about the fullness of the joy of Christ. The fullness of the joy of Christ. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. And I pray we've got two weeks now to chew on this, Father. Two weeks to understand just as. Just as the Father has loved the Son. And we start to ask ourselves, am I loving my brother with agape love? I want to ask, how did the Father love the Son? And how did the Son love the church? And then I want to ask, am I doing the just as? Am I doing the just as? Or have I bought into a cosmos philosophy? Have I bought into a light and fluffy approach? So Father, open our eyes to this truth. Teach us from your truth. And then we do pray, Father. We're going to miss a, an upcoming Wednesday, but we can pray even now. We should be praying even now. Father, our VBS week is coming up, and I'm praying for the students. I'm praying for the teachers and all the volunteers and helpers. We want the activity here to take place for the glory of your Son. Any of these little ones that don't know your Son, Father, pray that the gospel will be loud and clear. Pray that we'll make a proper adaptation of the, of the uh, material. And uh, just pray, Father, that your Son will be glorified so that when one of these little ones comes to Christ, the angels in heaven will rejoice and we will share in that joy of Christ and our joy might be made full. And I thank you, Father, in His most precious and holy name. Amen.